of the things that I think most people enjoy about Christmas is the lights. We have lights on the trees. Sometimes people have lights in their windows. Many people decorate their homes with lights. Perhaps you do this either now or maybe when you go back home, if you live elsewhere, you go and you drive around one evening to look at the lights of Christmas. When I was a kid, I have an older brother. We both would, would bug our parents saying, can we put lights on our house? Year after year, we asked the same thing and the answer was always the same, no. It takes too much work, it costs too much, it's a waste of money. We thought our dad was Scrooge because of his answer. Eventually we had children. They said the same thing to us. Can we put lights on our home? Could we decorate for Christmas? And what do you think I said? No, it takes too much work, takes too much time, it costs too much money. They also thought that I was Scrooge. But even though I didn't want to put them on the house, I do love the lights of Christmas. It really is compelling if you drive to a, a park or you know, see several homes that are decorated so well. And the lights are, are brilliant, not at midday. You wouldn't leave today and say, hey, after church, let's go look at Christmas lights. They won't even be plugged in or turned on typically during the day because the lights are brilliant at night. In the darkness, that's when they shine and are so beautiful and so compelling. But Christmas lights are not only beautiful, they're also meaningful. There's a reason for this decoration at Christmas. And it's because the very center of Christmas is that light has come into the world. That the world is dark, but the good news is light has come. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Today will be in Isaiah chapter 9. So in the Bibles near you, you can find that on page 573 page 573. I encourage you to open up that Bible or your own Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you. If you're newer to reading the Bible, uh, the larger numbers, the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 9. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 1. We'll go through verse 7. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table back there. There's a sign by those Bibles. We'd love for you to just grab one of those and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. Now this month we're stepping out of our series in Matthew for this Advent series. And today we turn to the prophet Isaiah, who preached in the southern kingdom of Judah during the closing decades of the 8th century B.C. So Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Rejoice, for the light has broken into the darkness in the coming of Jesus Christ for us. Rejoice, for the light has broken into the darkness in the coming of Jesus Christ for us. And we'll look at our passage in three parts. First, we'll see the appearance of the light. Second, the joy of the light. And then finally, the source of the light. So the appearance, the joy, and the source of the light. So first, the appearance of the light in verse 1 and 2. We always want to read the Bible in light of its context. So obviously, chapter 9 follows chapter 8. But if you were to later this week read chapter 8, you find something that's really sort of heavy that you've, throughout the chapter. And what we find in chapter 8 is that God's people were rebelling against God, neglecting God's word. In fact, they were seeking wisdom from uh, spiritual mediums rather than God's revealed word. So they're living apart from God, avoiding God, neglecting his word. And as a result, we're told that because of their sin and the good discipline of their God, they were living in spiritual darkness. So chapter 8, verse 22 says, Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. So we're told that the darkness and gloom covered God's people. The darkness of their own rebellion against God, the, the, the brokenness of their own individual lives, and, and living in a world where it was one war uh, of a nation against a nation again and again. And on this day, another war was looming, an invasion by the Assyrians. But even in the midst of that, there was a far deeper darkness. That was the spiritual condition of the people. So Isaiah 8 ends gloom, darkness, anguish. But in chapter 9, Isaiah the prophet now turns and begins to speak of a hopeful future. I mean, if you read from 8 into 9, you'll notice a very abrupt change. A tremendous contrast from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Although they were currently in the midst of great darkness, he says in chapter 9, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. He mentions verse 9, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were the two northeastern tribes in the land west of the Jordan uh, among Israel. And because of their location geographically, typically when invading armies came, they would come down from the top. So Zebulun and Naphtali would be the first ones invaded. This happened repeatedly, and it would happen soon. The Assyrians would again come through these two uh, tribes. So the, the, they, they face this consistent, uh, overwhelming invasion. And here it's referred to, Zebulun and Naphtali, also by the name Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And here it serves a hint of what God would do in Christ, of bringing in from all the nations. And in the beginning of verse 2, Isaiah speaks of the people there who were walking in darkness. They dwelled, in fact, in deep darkness. Walking here in, in, in implies all of their life. Their very pattern of life is marked by living in darkness. This was because of their own rebellion against God. But into this darkness, Isaiah announces this good news. And what is the good news? We see that those who walked in darkness now have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So the good news is the world is dark, but light has broken in. Now at the time of this prophecy, the light had not yet appeared. But the prophet Isaiah was certain of its coming. So we'll see numerous times in this passage, and, and among the prophets, well, they'll speak in past tense of something that was in the future from them. That's because the prophets were so certain it would happen, they would speak of it as if it already had, even though it had not yet come. So that's what Isaiah is doing here. And first, we should notice, as we think about the darkness they're in, we, he says that the light shone on them. It's notable that they were not seeking the light. They didn't find the light. But instead, the light came pursuing them in the darkness. We rarely experience real darkness in our world today because of electricity, batteries, and we certainly rarely do in the city. Even if you want to find some measure of darkness, it's difficult because there are lights everywhere. But probably at some point in life, you found yourself in, in a cave or some setting that's really weighty darkness. Imagine with me that on a Saturday, uh, I invited some of you to go on a hike with me. And for some reason you agreed. And so we, so we went up into remote New Hampshire to go hike a mountain. But I'm not a very good hiker, so I don't have a map, nor a flashlight, nor my phone. But you still foolishly chose to go with me. So, so, so we're hiking together out there. Night begins to fall, and we realize we don't know where we are. We have no way to contact anyone, and we have no light. We don't have any form of light with us, and it's night. But not only night, it's a cloudy night. So there's not even light from stars or the moon. So there's this weighty darkness, but also a darkness that is dangerous. We don't know where we are. We don't know how we would ever get out. And so we sit and we wait. We wonder what will come of us. Then after hours of waiting in the darkness, a spotlight shines on us. The spotlight stays fixed on us as the light grows larger and larger as this rescue party finds us. We weren't looking for them, but they came looking for us. And this light shines on us, and the rescuing party comes and saves us. Friends, that's the sense of this. They weren't looking for light. They didn't want the light. But in God's grace, the light has come. Now, what is the light? It is not some subjective, personal experience. No, the light is not a what, but we see in our passage the, the light is a who, it is a person. The light that stepped into the world is Jesus Christ, God the Son, as we'll see more explicitly in a moment. He came to bring light into the darkness. And in Jesus' own words, he described himself as the light. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus speaking, he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here Jesus puts his card on the table. Here's who I am. I am the light. I'm the light of life. For those who once walked in darkness, there is another way. So Jesus came to deliver sinners like us from darkness, to take us from living in the depths of darkness to now the kingdom of his light. As Isaiah the prophet was looking ahead to the birth of Jesus Christ, he was saying that the good news, the light was going to finally come into the world. And in fact, Jesus Christ, the true light, did come 
And he fulfilled even the, the smallest bit of this prophecy as Isaiah mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali. He mentions in verse 1 that the, these, this place had been marked by contempt, but there would be a future sort of shining forth there. And we find in the Gospel of Matthew, here's what it says, Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here the gospel writer Matthew is saying, This is what was happening. Jesus was, in fact, going to Zebulun and Naphtali, he was going to Galilee of the nations. And when Jesus came, the light had come. And so Jesus spent a considerable amount of time in Galilee, there loving, showing compassion, healing, telling the good news of his kingdom, inviting people to repent and trust in him. The light, just as God had promised, shone forth in Galilee. So friend, you see that the light Jesus Christ came pursuing sinners like us out of God's grace and mercy. Friends, Christianity is, is not the story of some impersonal, distant God that we try to pursue through our own effort or that we reach out to through our own religious devotion. But the story of Christianity is of a God who comes near to us. In fact, a God who takes on flesh, Jesus Christ, to come and pursue, to seek sinners like us, that he might bring light and life to us. Friends, that's the story of Christmas. Light breaking into darkness. And the coming of this light is all of grace. They didn't deserve the light to come and get them. They had not reformed themselves, and neither have we. We don't deserve the, the light of Christ. But the good news is it is all of grace, a gift held out to all. And so, friend, I wonder, have you personally seen this light of Christ? Maybe you're not a Christian, and if so, we're so glad you would spend a part of your Sunday with us here today. And I wonder if this description of darkness resonates with you at all. Do you feel the darkness of this world? Do you sometimes sense a darkness within in your own choices and actions? We're not saying that everything is as dark as it might be. By God's grace, it's not as dark as it would be. Still, darkness dominates. We want you to know that there is hope in this story of Jesus Christ the light of grace, salvation, held out to any and all who receive it by faith. But for those of us who are Christians, you see what this says about God's loving pursuit of you. Never lose sight of the fact that you were far from God, living in darkness, and out of God's great love, Christ came here to pursue sinners like us. What a gracious God. So we see the appearance of the light, but... What resulted from the coming of the light? That brings us to second, the joy of the light. The joy of the light in verses three through five. Isaiah says that God has increased their joy and that the people now rejoice. 
And to try to give us an idea of what this joy is like, Isaiah draws on two different images in verse 3. First, he says, it's like the joy of harvest. So this is a farmer who's, who's done the work of sowing the seeds, caring for the field, watering the crop, praying for rain, waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, there's a crop and now it's been brought in and the farmer celebrates there is great joy. I admit in greater Boston, harvest just doesn't click with many of us, right? Probably few of us have ever participated in any real sort of harvest in this way. But maybe it's like the end of the semester or you've labored hard to the end and you make it through finals and you pass. It's like that sort of harvest joy. Or maybe it's even at graduation. Some people in Boston actually do graduate. They, they finish school, believe it or not. And so it's that, you've made it through. There's this joy, this relief that you made it through. Or it might be like, like a year-end bonus that you weren't expecting from your employer and that particularly meets some needs that you had. You weren't sure how you would meet it. And this bonus does that. What comes as a result of that? Great joy. The other image he gives is that of, that of victory, like when an army defeats another army and there are spoils left over and they're gathering up those spoils. There's the joy of that. That too probably doesn't resonate so much with us. We, we've not had that experience. But the image of joy in recent days that, that I've followed and probably many of you have as well is the World Cup. It really is a, a compelling event. Now, I admit I'm not a great soccer fan, not very knowledgeable about it, but every four years I, I tune in and watch some of it and try to learn a few things as we do. And though, you know, here in America, we get, get excited for American football and basketball and baseball, and there, there's excitement in the crowds. I don't think there's anything quite like what you see in the World Cup. And you watch the games and the ups and downs. Of, it looks like this team's going to win and that one's going to win. And the crowds are just going crazy in the stands. And then finally, one of them wins. But then the joy is not, you know, contained only in the stadium. It's outside the stadium and certainly back home in whatever country they're from. You know, often they'll, they'll cut to a scene from their home country, and there this great celebration, this great joy is happening. Have you seen the, the scenes from Morocco? That's who I'm pulling for now. Go, Morocco. I'm with you to the end. But there was this great joy and celebration at this victory. So all this to say, here's this joy that comes in knowing the light. It's God himself who has given us this joy, has given us this gift. And notice our joy, verse 3, is in relation to him. They rejoice before you. So God's design is that God's people would know him and would enjoy him, would enjoy his good gifts to us. Now in the text, he gives us multiple reasons for this great joy. One, he says that we, we, we can have great joy because of an expanding people. He says, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. So Isaiah speaks of what God has done. He says, you have, meaning that God has multiplied the nation, meaning God has multiplied his people. The kingdom is growing because more and more people are trusting in Jesus, the king. And friends, this is God's great joy to bring in people from every nation and tribe and tongue. He started doing that in Christ. He continues that until now and will until the end. And in our text, this is tied to joy. The people of God, God's people, take joy at more and more people knowing our Savior and King. And so, friend, if you're a Christian, it's worth considering, do you still find joy in other people hearing and believing? Does that excite you in any way? 
I mean, what a joy it is as a church. We get to celebrate baptism. That should stir our hearts with great joy. When we hear of, of other churches in our city, other church plants celebrating baptism, new churches started, does that bring joy to us? It would also imply that if I'm lacking in joy, which often happens for us, one way, not the only way, one way to fight that lack of joy is to feed my joy by becoming more and more aware of the good news going forward. Learn about, read about the good news going to people who've never heard. So some that we support to, to hear and know about the good work that's happening through Cora and Greg and Kim and Susan and other parts of the world. As a team from Hope goes and serves in Turkey to, to hear about that, to learn about people who are going to nations who've never heard the gospel. It's a good way to stir joy within us as we hear of this light going forward to the nations. So friends, let's pray as a church that, that this would happen more and more in our church. Let's pray that next year we would get to celebrate with joy baptism often. Let's pray for other churches in our city, new church plans to be started, churches to be healthy and going forward. And pray for the work among the nation that more and more people around the globe would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Another source of joy that we see in the text is because of deliverance. We see this verse four, look down at verse four. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So here Isaiah makes two historical references that his original hearers would have certainly understood. The image of yoke and burden, shoulder and oppressor would recall, would recall the Israelites' captivity in Egypt. And they had been under the heavy hand, enslaved under Pharaoh. The yoke was heavy. They were unable to free themselves from this oppressor. But God graciously came and rescued them. And he did it through all of his own power and none of theirs. It wasn't that God helped them fight their way out. They did nothing. It was all the mighty hand of God that delivered God's people out of slavery in Egypt. That became the high point in the history of God's people as they celebrate the Passover, how God delivered them. And then the mention of Midian at the end of verse 4 points to the defeat of Midian in the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges is probably not a book you spend a lot of time on, but if you know one story from Judges, it would probably be this story of Gideon. So God, through this man Gideon, wins a battle through a very small, intentionally small army and interestingly, the way they win it is through light. A, a flash of light is leveraged for them winning the battle. And so here, Isaiah draws on those two images of deliverance. God doing the work of delivering out of Egypt, delivering them from the Midianites. And God is the one doing the rescue. And the Bible says that all people, every single one of us, are under a yoke ourselves. And it is the yoke of slavery, not to a person though, but to sin. Every one of us are born into sin. And by our own choices, we, we embrace sin. We find ourselves under the weight of this. Now, sometimes we've lived under the weight of this yoke so long that we don't even notice it because it's all we've ever known. But the reality is we live under this yoke and we're in need of deliverance. We're, we're under this enemy of God, Satan himself, who oppresses us. And I wonder, do you sense the pain, the burden of this yoke of sin in your life if you're not a Christian? But the good news is that Jesus came 
to deliver us from that, to rescue us from the oppressor and to lift us up. And just like God's people did not deliver themselves out of Egypt, we also do not rescue ourselves. Christianity is not the story of self-rescue, but it's a savior who rescues us. Now, how was this deliverance brought about? How was it accomplished? Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came and walked the earth in a sinless way. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, but none of us have lived. He, he lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross, and there on the cross, he endured the darkness of the cross. Though he was sinless, he bore the wrath of God poured out on him. He bore the darkness of death and the grave. He took that darkness in our place so we wouldn't have to. And then he rose in the light, triumphant over Satan, sin, and death to provide this gift of deliverance, this gift of salvation to any and all who receive it by faith. Friends, that's the good news of Christmas. And this, friends, is not temporary liberation, but it begins now and lasts forward into eternity. So, friend, if you're a Christian, never forget you have been freed you were captive, enslaved, no way of saving yourself, but a gracious Savior came and he gave himself for you to set you free. So friend, live as a joyfully delivered, liberated person. We can also have great joy because of the promise of lasting peace. We see this in verse 5. It says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So it's the image of a time when a battle has ceased and no longer are the items needed so they can be burned. There'll be no more fights to engage in. Friends, this points to the future hope that is ours in Christ, that a time is coming when Christ returns, when finally there will be no more battles to fight in this world. There will be peace that reigns in this world. We'll, we'll no longer have to fight against Satan and sin. For Christ came to bring peace. He won the victory over Satan, sin, and death through his cross and resurrection. The victory has been won, but it's not yet complete or it's not yet fully realized. But friends, a day is coming at the return of Christ when there will be final, complete, and eternal peace. And so we can look forward with great joy to this future day of lasting peace. So we see the joy of the light, but then Isaiah gives us an even clearer more specific picture of who the light is. So we see the source of the light in verse 6 and 7. Now, where we are in this moment in history, when we look back to Isaiah, it's not hard for us to see that's referring to Jesus. But in the day of Isaiah, they're hearing these words, this, this promise would have been challenging for them to pull together and to understand. So they're hearing this wonderful promise of light and joy, of deliverance, but wondering, how would this happen? How will this deliverance be brought about? And then we come to verse 6, what would have been shocking to them. Imagine you're there, you're, you're, you're living in darkness, here's a promise of future deliverance. How will it come? And it says this, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. If you're thinking about the, the oppressor weighing you down, a promise of deliverance, you're not expecting the good news to be a child, a baby. You'd hope for a military leader, perhaps, that this military leader will come and he'll lead us out. But here the promise is a baby, a baby that would be given. 
And here we see the promise of this one who would be given as a gift. This one who was to come, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world as a gift. We see a description of him, verse 6 and 7. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So he is the king who reigns, who reigns over all, and there will finally be a lasting, perfect kingdom and government under Jesus. Now we see a number of names that are given to him, but these were not intended to be his given name that he would go by as he walked the earth. The angel told Joseph to name him, jo to name him Jesus, and that's what he went by. He was known as Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. But these names, like the name Emmanuel, which also is given, are not intended to be the name he was called, but they're descriptions of what he's like, of his character. And in these four couplets, we have descriptions of what Jesus is like, and in them we have an intermingling of both humanity and divinity. And that's the, the heart of this incarnation that we celebrate. Jesus, God the Son, comes in the flesh, fully God and fully man. So he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So he is unique, a source of wonder. He's divine, and he's a source of perfect wisdom. True and perfect counsel wisdom comes from this divine one. He's also mighty God. He's the powerful one. The child who is born in the manger is also God. A human baby, also mighty God. And because he's mighty God, there is no enemy that could ever defeat him. And he's everlasting father. The Messiah, Jesus, acts towards his people often like a father. He's fatherly in his love and actions. We, we see in the Gospels, he had a fatherly role often to his disciples, as he sometimes called them son and daughter. So he's like our father in heaven in many ways. And he's also like our father in heaven, eternal, everlasting. And he's the prince of peace. He brings peace and he reigns in peace. And he's the source of peace. He's the one who brought peace with God through his death. He's the one who gives peace to us as a gift of grace day by day. We see the rest of verse 7, that there will be no end to his government, no end to his reign. So we see the unique nature of the kingdom of Jesus growing, expanding, fruitful, marked by peace. And he will reign with justice and righteousness. In the final verse, God is the one who zealously brings this about. God's great zeal is what pursued and provided for this. So friends, now at Christmas, on this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, we celebrate that our Savior has come just as God promised. So centuries before, through Isaiah, this promise is given. Then that night in Bethlehem, the promise is made real. Jesus comes taking on flesh. He came being fully God and fully man, born in a manger. The God-man has come near to us. And for this one who came near to us, who came seeking sinners like us, who died in our place for us, he is faithful. Always faithful to his people. Always faithful 
to his promises. And he's powerful. Powerful to intervene and to work for our good. He's fatherly in his care to his peoples. For know that. That's the sort of care, heart, that he has for you as a child of God. He is eternal. And he continues his work in the world day by day by his spirit who dwells in each and every Christian. So he gives peace day by day in you and through you. He sustains and keeps you. And he came as a gift, this gracious gift of God. So friend, if you've not received this gift of trusting in Christ, most of all this season, we would love for you to consider this gift. Perhaps receive this gift today by faith or, or begin a, a process of exploration. But if this is very new to you, we just invite you to, to the extent that you feel comfortable to keep attending with us here. If you'd like to talk with someone, you'd like to know more, I'll be at the door following the service. I'd be happy to talk with you. Or if you came with a friend or a family member, if they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you more. Also, the Connect card that, that Mike mentioned earlier on the back of that, there's some things you could check if you'd like to know more. And only if you want to know more, we would love to arrange for you to talk with someone or to read the Bible with them. So you can drop those cards in the basket or in the boxes at the back following the service. Friend, if you are a Christian, find joy today, not in your circumstances. For life in this world is often dark, often disappointing, very often painful and difficult. In this room, every one of us has burdens that weigh us down, doubts that hang, questions that have arisen. Friend, in the midst of that, find joy, not in circumstances, but in your promise-making and promise-keeping God. The one who came to deliver, the one who came seeking you with the light. The light has shone on you. So friend, in spite of circumstances, through the circumstances, it's possible for us to have joy, an enduring joy, a tenacious, unbreakable joy that's not thin, but that's abiding because of the faithful work of our Savior and King. And it's our prayer that you would know this joy today, this week, and this season.